Matthew has been blessing us uh, under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit with his record of the life of Christ. Uh, We started in this on September 9th. We did the very last paragraph of Matthew. And if you were here September 9th, 2007, uh, we studied the beginning from the end. And we went to the Great Commission. We looked at the mission of our church to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And then in the very next week, we began in Matthew 1.1. And we find ourselves at this point in Matthew chapter 6. And we've made it all the way to verse 16. And that's where we'll pick up our study this morning. This has been rich for my own life. I trust it's been rich for yours. We have spent months and months here in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, this is crucial for our development as believers. It's critical for the foundational level of our church life and what it means to be a follower of Christ, what it is to claim or to profess that I am one of Christ's. I am a Christian. These chapters, chapter 5 through 7, really lay before us a standard that brings us to our knees, doesn't it? I mean, it really crushes us. And that's appropriate because the, the very first and primary attitude, heart response of one who is a true believer is crushed in spirit. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. It is a brokenness, it is a bankruptcy spiritually that drives us to the cross where we fall in humility and we depend totally by faith in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, which then God rewards by His marvelous grace. He rewards us with a new heart, a new life, a new nature, a freedom from sin, the opportunity to live outside of the power of sin. Though the presence is still with us, we live outside of its power. We live completely outside of its consequence. And ultimately, even the presence of sin will be removed when our salvation is completed in heaven and our glorification. And that is what we long for, and that is what these passages drive us towards as we develop our understanding of what it is to be a follower of Christ, or in, in our study, what it is to be a kingdom citizen, one who is marked out because he lives under the rule and the reign of the King of Kings, Jesus Christ himself. We've been studying in chapter 6 these first three paragraphs or sections, thought sections, we've been studying three outward um, activities that are a potential for us to live hypocritically as believers. And it's all funneled back to verse 1 of chapter 6. And if you haven't been with us, this really lays the the groundwork, the foundation for what we are studying and what we're going to even study today. Matthew chapter 6 verse 1 says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you'll have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. In other words, if your righteousness is mere externalism, if it is merely external and it is merely earthly in its scope, then your reward will also be merely earthly in its scope. And the hypocrisy that was so rampant in this time period when Jesus is talking on the side of that mountain is equally rampant today, where righteousness takes on a form, but it has no heart behind it that matches that form. And that's exactly what we're being warned about as those who fall under the title of kingdom citizens. And then Jesus proceeds to give us three illustrations of areas where this is so common in the existence of those listening to him, that they would have no problem picking up the danger 
that was attached to these three illustrations. And that first one was the giving of alms, giving to those who are in need. The second one is prayer, where we have spent weeks and weeks looking at the opportunity for hypocrisy in our prayer lives. And then we come finally today to the issue of fasting. Also an opportunity for hypocrisy. There ought to be a danger sign that is put above the issue of fasting. Not because fasting in and of itself is not appropriate and helpful, but because with it comes a particular danger for hypocrisy, which removes any opportunity for there to be an eternal and a heavenly reward for that activity, that external righteousness, that practice of righteousness that is spoken of in chapter 6, verse 1. Now, just by way of introduction, fasting is not a common subject in the discussion of the church. Really, I I was thinking this week, I kind of feel like fasting is like that stepchild of the Christian life. And we really don't talk about fasting too much. And if we do, we kind of want to get to it and get away from it because we don't really like the idea of not eating. Okay? I mean, let's just be honest. We read that Jesus fasted for 40 days and we think to ourselves, I've been fasting for 40 minutes and I'm starving. How in the world did he do that? And why would I want to do that? Fasting is not popular. It's not common. It's not something we discuss. And a lot of times I think we don't discuss it and it's not common because of some of the distortions of its practice and its purpose. We're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. The emphasis in this section on fasting, let's be real clear at what the emphasis is from the get-go. The emphasis is no different than the earlier passages that we've already studied. The Lord is concerned that the kingdom citizen does not become merely external in this opportunity to live righteously before others. There is an opportunity to give yourself to a particular righteous activity, and it can be wasted if it is done with the wrong motive, if it is done with the wrong heart. And not unlike the remainder that we've already studied of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is first concerned with who we are and then what we do. And in our legalistic mindset, in our self-dependence, we want to think about what do I do that will make me what I should be. The reality is grace will make you what you should be and the fruit of that will be what you should do. So Jesus is concerned first with the heart, then with the activity, and it's no different here in verses 16 through 18. This is the message for this morning. Let's read these verses together and then we'll jump into our study of them together. And when you fast, verse 16 says, do not look gloomy, love that word, do not look gloomy, Like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. And truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, folks, it's interesting. As we study this, I want to, first of all, warn you of a particular danger in this study. As we think about, and as I talk with you a little bit about what the Pharisees were doing in fasting, it's really easy to get kind of a self-righteous smirk on our face. I mean, come on. These guys were hypocrites, like, professionally. This is what they did, and they did it at such a level that it is, it's almost humorous to us. 
how external, how hypocritical they were. We can get into our mind kind of a pious, I can't believe the Pharisees did that, when in fact the very reason Jesus is giving us this section, this warning, is not to address the Pharisees, though no doubt they felt what he said. He's addressing his people to expose the potential for this sin to be present in their lives, and that's us. So one of these passages can be a temptation for us to say, wow, look at that hypocrisy, when the purpose here is for us to say, what hypocrisy exists even in my own heart and life, and in particular when it comes to this issue of fasting. So we're going to look at three benchmarks in Jesus' argument against this hypocritical fasting. There's three of them. These are no different than the earlier ones that we've done. There's the assumed practice, there's the hypocrite's perversion, and then there's the kingdom citizen's purity. And we are dealing with a genuine follower of Christ, living life, living out righteousness with a genuine heart motive. So let's look first then at the assumed practice of fasting in verse 16. Jesus says, and when you fast, not unlike when you pray or when you give, there is an expectation, an assumption, a presupposition that you are in fact giving to those who are in need. There's a presupposition that you as a follower of Christ and as a worshiper of the King of Heaven, you pray. And we've spent weeks talking about that. And no different here, there's an expectation, there's an assumption, a presupposition that's given that we fast. And in particular, these individuals in this climate, religiously, were no doubt very accustomed to fasting. When you fast. Now, unique to fasting as opposed to prayer and giving, there is no New Testament command for us to fast. You won't find a specific uh, command given to us as the church that we are to pray, we are to be singing songs to one another, and uh, enriching the lives and encouraging each other. We're to be prodding each other, all the one another's. You'll never have a command in the New Testament for fasting. It's not commanded of us, and yet what we find throughout Scripture is it's illustrated over and over and over again as a natural outworking of our spiritual lives. That's a little clue into what we're talking about when it comes to biblical fasting. The only biblical command for fasting was in particularly dealing with the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament. And they were to prepare themselves, they were to humble their souls for the Day of Atonement. And that included resisting food or setting aside the natural need for food. Fasting, if we were to boil it down and put a little description on it, fasting is not some form of uh, self-torture which wins God's approval. It doesn't give us some special in with God. Fasting is simply the resistance of our physical needs or our fleshly needs for the sake of spiritual attention. Right? Biblical fasting, if we're going to boil it all down, at the most simplistic form, biblical fasting is not eating so that we can be praying. That's what fasting is. Fasting and prayer go hand in glove in Scripture. You can be praying and not fasting, but you can't be fasting biblically and not praying. That's the whole point. You are resisting a physical need for the sake of giving particular attention through prayer to a spiritual need. Now, there are all kinds of illustrations for fasting 
in our Bibles. And if you went to your concordance and started a study on fasting, you could find myriads. Let me give you a couple of the scenarios that we find people fasting in Scripture. We find people fasting because of the judgment of God that is imminent. Joel 1, 1, 1 verse 14 says, Consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land and the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord because He's going to judge. So call a fast. Public calamities. We find in 2 Samuel 1, in verse 12, the people of God mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And so their leadership dies. Second Samuel, the whole nation stops eating because of a national calamity. And they give themselves to mourning, public calamities, affections of the church. In Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 35, They're setting aside who would be followers, and they fast. In Acts chapter 2, we see them fasting. Afflictions of others, we see in Psalm 35 and Daniel 6. Private afflictions, David, when he loses his son, the child of Bathsheba, he fasts because he is mourning, approaching danger. And the ordination of ministers, Acts chapter 13, rather, not 2, Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 14 both find the early church fasting because of the weight of the decision that was on their, their circumstance. Fasting, biblically, is a resistance to naturally given desires and needs, physical needs for the sake of spiritual attention. There are some things that we need to be very clear about that make fasting confusing today. Fasting is not, in and of itself, a means of grace. Understand what I mean by that. As a means of grace, it is not some special activity that warrants some unique work of God in your life. It is not a means of grace for you. It's not that if you're not fasting, you're not developing and growing as a believer because you are losing a means of grace. Fasting is not a mystic power. Most of Eastern religion uses fasting to give mystic power and to provide mystic visions. You know why there's mystic visions when you fast long enough? Because you're hallucinating. That's why you have a mystic vision. There is no mystic power in fasting. But if you don't eat, you will get a vision. Okay, that much I can guarantee you. Fasting is not a form of self-torture, as we've already mentioned which wins God's ear. It is good if it is done well or rightly, and if it is done with the right heart motive. And that is the assumption that Jesus makes here. When you fast, when you stop eating for the sake of giving yourself to prayer and focus on a spiritual need. Okay? Pretty simple. And yet really something that doesn't naturally flow in the maybe the American culture of evangelicalism today. And yet it is not uncommon to us in the very human sense. If you have been in the deepest mourning, if you have lost suddenly or not suddenly a loved one and you have mourned, you have fasted. It wasn't maybe a decision on your part. It was that you didn't want to eat. Why eat when I have this weight of suffering on my heart? No different when a biblical use of fasting is described Why eat? Why give myself to eating when I can give myself to the spiritual need that is at hand? It's a setting aside of food for the sake 
of the spiritual attention that is needed. Okay? That is the assumed practice that we're addressing here when it comes to fasting, and I hope that that helps a little bit. There is so much more that we could say about fasting. It's all through your scriptures. You'll find numerous illustrations. Okay? Secondly, then, the second benchmark that we find here is the hypocrite's perversion. And this is really when we get to the heart of the issue. And when you fast, that is you kingdom citizen, you who are followers of my kingdom, when you fast, here is a description of the distortion and the perversion of the hypocrites of this time period. Look at what they do. Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces and that their fasting may be seen by others. And if you go down, you get a little more description in verse 17. And when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Your fasting may not be seen by others. The hypocrites gave themselves to fasting at a very disciplined and regimented time frame. They were fasting often, and they had many days in which they were fasting. But the hypocrites, who were uh, maybe represented best by the Pharisees, also did that with a very keen eye to hoping that you noticed that they were fasting. And this is just hilarious. You get a mental picture of this, but they look gloomy. I mean, come on. They're walking around, and they're just kind of droopy-eyed and just barely hanging in there. I mean, they're dirty. They look bad. They've got bed head. I mean, what happened to you, Pharisee? Well, no one needed to ask, because if they were even close to asking, the Pharisee would inform them, well, I'm in a fast. I'm fasting. I'm barely hanging in there. I don't have much strength. I didn't even have the time to clean up my face because I gave myself to fasting. The whole purpose of fasting is to deny the fleshly or deny the, the temporal for the sake of the eternal or for the sake of the spiritual. And yet the Pharisee denied the physical for the sake of the physical. He wanted desperately for people to see him. So he completely missed the boat. The hypocrite completely misses the opportunity that is available when it comes to the issue of fasting for the motivation is described that they may be seen by others in verse 16. This is why they fast. They fast exclusively for the opportunity to tell someone they're fasting. Now, folks, this is where we start to get a little bit of humor because Jesus later in verse 17 tells us to anoint our heads. That's a little clue into some of what went on when the Pharisees and the hypocrites fasted. One of the things that they refused to do was to use oil on their heads, which was a perfume and a cleansing agent. They wouldn't use oil because that was edible. And it was a potential that some of that oil might, you know, you might lick some of that oil as it's pouring down your head. And boom, you broke your fast and you've ruined everything. So they wouldn't use oil on their heads. And so they come out, basically, folks, let's think about... um, (laughs) Early time period hygiene issues. They have been not cleaned. They have no cleaning of their face. Their oil has not been used on their head to give them a perfume and a cleansing. These people are rank and they look bad. And it is an unbelievable spectacle that is made for this purpose of fasting. What a mockery that is of fasting. What a perversion that is of the benefit Here they were denying the flesh all for the sake of flesh, all for the sake of being noticed, all for the praise of others. And Jesus says, no different than any other hypocritical activity, if anybody noticed that you were fasting, congratulations, you just received your reward. That is all the further it will go. That's all the further the benefit and the scope of influence it will have. Hypocrisy 
begins in an earthly sense and it ends in an earthly sense. It is fleshly in its outset and it is fleshly in its conclusion. They received their reward. That's all they will get is if they are noticed by others. Now, no doubt, we're guilty as charged in this area too. Okay, folks, I mean, we've got to be specific. You probably have never fasted in such a way that you refused to use your shampoo and your soap and you came out and you at least looked presentable. But no doubt this same heart of hypocrisy has crept into our lives, whether it be in the fasting issue that is specifically mentioned here or in any number of other issues within our Christian experience. Let me give you a for instance, and you start to walk down the road of application in your own lives. For instance, college ministries occasionally have made the point that to be um, testifying as a college student on a secular campus that you're a follower of Christ, it's important for you to carry your Bible with your books. I mean, that's a great thing, right? I mean, you carry your science book, you don't care one little bit about it. You're a student and you're in science class. Of course I carry a science book. You carry your psychology book, you carry whatever class you're taking. Why not put your Bible on top of those books and boldly proclaim as you walk across campus, I'm a follower of Christ. This book means everything to me. It's the living word. All of that is pure. The motivation is right. And that's a great opportunity for an opportunity to talk about the gospel. Problem. Over time, that becomes a life of its own. And many could testify that Bibles get bigger and bigger. Those who didn't carry their Bible because they slipped out after having time with God in in His Word and in prayer forgot to grab their Bible, are now deemed as less than spiritual. And all of a sudden, something that started as a pure motivation, an opportunity to testify of God's work in our lives, has become something of its own. It's become an entity all in of itself. It's become a distraction, and it has become a hypocritical tool that robs us of the opportunity that, of, that is there before us for blessing. Clothing is no different. You might want to pull your toes back just a little bit when we talk about clothing. Um, I felt that way when we did the article of the month on modesty. I'm like, well, that's dangerous, but we're going to do it anyway. When it comes to clothing in the church, right? There was a time period in the past when we gave attention to our clothing for church. We gave attention to what we wore because we wanted to present ourselves in such a way as to say we respected the event that we were a part of. We respected the seriousness of of coming together with God's people to worship Him. We put some time and attention into what we were doing. That slowly began with the right motive and turned at some point in different churches. I don't know when it happened in my church growing up, but it turned to where suddenly clothing became an issue all in and of itself. And it was, what about, did you see what so-and-so was wearing today? Or can you believe what so-and-so came into church with today? And suddenly, something that started as an opportunity and the right heart motivation became a potential hypocritical activity that loses all value and meaning. The result is, many have said today, whether with the right heart or without the right heart, who cares about what we look like? God cares about the reverence of our hearts. You're right. He cares about the reverence of our hearts. And yet, culturally, it makes no difference for us to show respect and to bring a seriousness to what we do. 
So we're back at square one because there has been so much damage done by a hypocritical application of something that was started with a pure motive. Here we have fasting in this context. It was to set aside physical needs for the sake of spiritual concerns, and it became something of a spectacle for the sake of being noticed by others. That was the hypocrite's distortion, perversion of this righteous activity of fasting. So it's assumed, but it's not commanded for the kingdom citizen, but it is an assumed reality, and it has an easy trap for us if we allow ourselves to fall into it, and that is being hypocritical about it. Folks, if you're fasting, what we're going to find in the kingdom purity that's about to be described is that's between you and the Lord. And if you're giving, that's between you and the Lord and the one receiving your gifts. And if you're praying, that's a communion between you and the Lord because God is concerned about your heart. That's the motivation that must drive us in these issues. Now we come to the kingdom citizen's purity. We've seen the hypocrite's perversion and now the purity that's outlined for us in verses 17 and 18. But when you fast, but being a contrast, when you fast, here, here's a description of what you're to do. Anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Anoint your head. That's the issue of the oil. Go ahead and cleanse yourself. Wash your face. I mean, here it is, folks. Your mom's out there. I mean, this is golden. There's a command in Scripture to wash your face. Right? I'm looking for brush your teeth. I haven't found it yet. I'm sure it's in there somewhere. Maybe it's hidden in the Greek or the Hebrew language. But wash your face. You're fasting. It's not about others knowing you're fasting. If your motivation is right, if your heart is right, you're doing so to give attention before God to a spiritual concern in your life. Therefore, take a shower, wash your face, present yourself in a normal fashion so that there is no distraction to you. It's not about others seeing you. It's about your present, pre- presenting yourself before God, resisting a physical need. Why? What's the purpose for this kingdom purity in fasting? Why do we anoint our head? Why do we wash our face? Why do we clean up? We do that so that we may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. Our goal when it comes to the issue of fasting, our goal when it comes to the issue of prayer, our goal when it comes to the issue of giving, is to lay ourselves in righteousness before our Heavenly Father. Folks, this is so counterintuitive to us because we want people to know what we've done. We want just a little bit of a pat on the back. I remember as counseling someone several years ago talking about their obvious desire to be noticed for everything they did and their frustration and disappointment if they were not thanked for what service they had accomplished. I remember saying, that's not why we serve. We do not serve to be noticed. And their response was raw and honest, but the response was, well, a little pat on the back would be nice. And that's right. It would be nice. That's what we naturally want. But the supernatural desire of the kingdom citizen is not to be patted on the back. It's to, before God in secret, earn his approval, to merit his 
pleasure with our righteousness that is being accomplished by His grace through His work in us. The gospel is glorified in the secret noticing of the Father. He rejoices in the transformation that is brought about in His kingdom citizens and is seen in their private fasting as well as their prayer and giving. So God and God alone is the beneficiary of our fasting. He is the audience for your fasting. Fasting for the Christian life is the secret act of worship. Even corporate fasting. There may be a day when we have a corporate fast. We give ourselves and we deny ourselves food for the sake of praying for this ministry in a particular way. Maybe we're on the brink of a major decision as a ministry. And we desire to have God's wisdom between option A and option B. Maybe we're looking at adding new staff to our church. Maybe we're at a transition point in the direction of our ministry. And we give ourselves corporately to fasting. Even that is to be a secret activity between you and the Lord. Fasting, whether corporate or private and individual, must remain with the sole audience of God himself and the reward then will flow from that audience and your father who sees in secret will reward you so folks we're left again with that pit in our stomach that hypocrisy is so close to us the heart reality as kingdom citizens is that we want desperately for god to be pleased we want him to be glorified we want him to receive All the praise for what is done in our lives, all the righteousness that flows from us is a result of His work in us. And yet we are so prone to just rob just a little bit back for ourselves. Let's set our attention, whether it be in the issue of giving or prayer or even fasting in these illustrations from our Lord. Let's give our attention to being secret in our motive, secret in our activity, so that before the Father we may receive His blessing. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1 must be the banner above our lives. Beware, beware of practicing righteousness before other people, so that they may be seen by others. Hypocrisy is the only end for the hypocrite. Folks, if you're here today and you know no life transformation, you have never experienced the grace of God through Christ, that is not the reality of your heart. You can try all you want to set your motives in order, and hypocrisy will always be the end. Why? Because you, in and of your own flesh, are striving for your own merit and your own working towards God, and that robs God of His glory, and it is hypocritical at its very core. If you're here this morning and you are a hypocrite, that is, that is your way of life. That is God's verdict on your life. You need Christ. You need Christ. You need the reality of 2 Corinthians 5.21 to be the testimony of your life. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. You must turn from your own effort. You must turn from your own desire for your own glory, for your own way to be exalted as wise, and turn to the foolishness of the gospel 
and place your confidence in the work of another, Jesus Christ. Then and only then will the secret worship, the secret righteousness take form that we see in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 5 people live righteously like Matthew chapter 6 teaches. You can't get to Matthew 6 without coming through Matthew 5. The gospel must be the reality of your life if these things are to be true. And that brings us then finally to those of us who are kingdom citizens, who are followers of Christ. And we must again bring our lives back to the table, lay it before the Lord in openness, and allow His Spirit to examine us, to root out any hypocrisy, any robbing of His glory, any audience that is concerned with others that we might be isolated in our attention to Him in our righteousness. We serve the audience of one. That's the testimony of the kingdom citizen. That's the warning and the danger that Christ outlines here in these illustrations in Matthew chapter 6. We know we must live righteously, but there's danger lurking even in that. And we must guard our hearts at all costs.